from 1 Kings chapter 10. We'll continue our work through, through this book. You know, I often watch business networks trying to keep up with what's going on in the marketplace. And as I watch some of the networks, one of the commercials that comes on all the time is a commercial for Grubhub. And it absolutely just irritates the fire out of me. Because their entire advertisement is people that are sitting around getting hungry for something. And then, of course, you know, well, let's just Grubhub it, right? And, and essentially the whole theme of this commercial is... I want it all, and I want it now. So whatever you want, you can have it. And every time, and then, of course, don't just say it one time. They've got to sing it over and over and over. It's like, ah, you know? And it's one of those things where you you ever have something where you don't really hear a lot of what's going on in the background, but all of a sudden that one thing catches your mind, and it just irritates you. And it's like, then I'm finally trying to find the mute button just so I can quit the commercial. It just irritates me that much. And one day I just kind of asked myself, you know, why does it irritate me so much? And I think it's because it, it, it's, one of those, it, it's one of those things that points to a problem that our entire society has and that our society worships excess and worships the power of consumer choice. The power of the individual even over the community. It speaks about how much our society worships excess. I mean, the Federal Reserve posting numbers in March that our society is $1.04 trillion in credit card debt and continues to grow. We live in a world that worships excess, worships money, worships status, worships self-gratification and the power of individual choice. And The problem is that even for us who are faithful in the church sometimes are absolutely clueless as to how powerful that cultural philosophy is and how much that that impacts our relationship with Christ and His church. Well, our day is certainly not the first of the Grubhub days. I guess you could say Solomon was part of a Grubhub culture himself. In fact, I'm going to ask you to stand and we'll read chapter 10, verses 14 through 29, and you're going to get a sense a little bit of what I'm talking about here. Let's stand together and let's read this text. Because we just came off of, we just came off of the incredible journey that the Queen of Sheba made to go and visit God's King and to hear God's wisdom, traveling some 10 months over 1,500 miles to hear God's wisdom through God's King. And in direct contrast to that, all of a sudden now we read this, verse 14, now the weight of gold which came into Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that, from the traders and the wares of the merchants and all the kings of the Arabs and the governors of the country. And King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold using 600 shekels of gold on each large shield. He made 300 shields of beaten gold using three mines of gold on each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. 
And moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with refined gold. There were six steps to the throne and round to the top of the throne at its rear and the arms on each side of the seat and two lions standing beside the arms. Twelve lions were standing there on the six steps on the side of each of one another and nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. All of King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. All the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None of it was silver. It was not even considered valuable in those days of Solomon. For the king had set, had at the sea the ships of Tarshish, which the ships of Hiram, which were the ships of, of Hiram, once every three years the ships of Tarshish came bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. My wife would want to add chickens in that mix somewhere. But. In verse 23, so King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. They brought every man his gift, articles of silver and gold and garments and weapons and spices and horses and mules, so much year by year. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed them in his chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. He made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the low land. And all Solomon's import and horses was from Egypt and Kew. And the king's merchants procured them from Kew for a price. A chariot was imported for Egypt from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And by the same means, they exported them to the kings of the Hittites and to the kings of the Arameans. And so, Father, as we examine this text this morning, my first prayer, Lord, is that I would decrease and you would increase. And may you magnify the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Help us to attune our ears and our hearts to your word. And may we be quick to repent. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. You can be seated, please. You know, when you first read that passage, you're kind of struck with a sense of amazement, of awe, of just how much wealth Solomon had accumulated. I mean, for the text to say that even silver was considered like dust in the, like rocks in the dust, speaks of the extravagance and the excess there that is almost unimaginable. When we look at the Bible as a whole, there's a lot about this passage that should encourage us. You know, I have said many times before that the, that the original intention of the kingship by God was for God to establish a king that was to be his representative ruler on behalf of God for the people. The kings themselves were meant to rule on behalf of God like a God. That was the original intent here. And so in many ways, you know, we, we, we should be encouraged by that because, the, you know, the it's something that where the Lord has installed his rightful king. But the problem here is that while we get this glimpse of all these nations and peoples coming and bringing gifts to Solomon, seeking out the wisdom of Solomon, we just saw the queen of Sheba coming in to visit Solomon. While we see all of that, the problem is that ultimately Solomon fails. And we'll learn about that the next time. 
that we look, especially in chapter 11. But what it does is it gives us a forward-looking view of hope. It helps us to understand that one day there will come a king who rules on behalf of God, who is all-wise, who is all-just, and who is never corrupt. It gives us a picture of what is coming for God's kingdom through God's king. The prophet Isaiah early spoke about this in the vision in chapter 2 when he said it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief mountains and it will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Isaiah giving us a glimpse of what the future of Zion would look like. And he gets to the end of his book and he says in chapter 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, Zion, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will reappear upon you. Nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your rising, and then you will see and be radiant and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian, Ephah, and those from Sheba will come, and they will bring gold and frankincense and bear good news of the praises of the Lord. He even says later the silver and gold will come with them. I mean, when we celebrate Christmas, we are celebrating the reality that what Isaiah foresaw became true. When you see these Persian astrologers, these magi that come in bearing gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, the Bible is pointing to us that the future king, God's true representative ruler, is now in our midst. And even now, as we come together, as we assemble this morning, we have this phrase that kind of bothers me, we're, we're going to church. You understand what that means? When we assemble here, when, when God's people actually assemble together according to Hebrews chapter 12, we have assembled at Mount Zion. To the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 12, 22-24 says that we've assembled this way and to myriads of angels, the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. We're not just attending church. We've all confessed that Christ is the true king. We've all confessed that Christ's blood is the only blood that can really atone for our sin. We've all confessed that we believe and embrace a new covenant that says that our bond in spirit is greater than the bond of blood. Did you hear what I just said? Not that the power of the individual. It's not about Jesus as my personal Savior. He is our Savior as a church. He has saved us into a believing community. 
in covenant fellowship together. And what a glorious hope that that gives us. Because when we gather together, like this morning, it's the dawning of fulfillment that you and I as Gentiles, we are the picture of the nation streaming to the feet of Christ to hear the wisdom of God. Christ, our righteous and perfect King, we who are the temple of God are to represent Him before the entire world. We are the new Zion, but all of this is only a foretaste of what is to come. One day soon, Jesus will reappear again. His glory will shine. And all those who refuse His kingship will be utterly devastated, humiliated, and judged, and banished to everlasting darkness and hell. But those who worship the righteous king now will be ushered into his glorious temple presence. The Apostle John says, I saw no temple in the new city, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and the lamp is the Lamb, and the lamp is the Lamb of God. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. They will bring their glory and honor, and the honor of the nations will stream into it. Nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but those only whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life question this morning is that with such a glorious vision of what God has in store for those who trust him and remain faithful to him, why are we so impressed with a Grubhub culture? Why are we so impressed with the riches of this world, the pleasures of this age, the wealth of this life, when there is so much more to come for those who will persevere until the end? It's something that we need to consider this morning as we look at this passage with Solomon because the real question for us here is how should we view Solomon's wealth? Is this a good thing? Is the writer of Kings depicting depicting to us something here that we should be impressed with or something that we should be concerned about? You know, upon the initial reading, like I said, your first response is, wow. I mean, there's probably no telling how many daily passes or tickets they were selling to the house of the Cedars of Lebanon to get a tour of the Golden Shields, right? I mean, you can imagine this was something that was a sight to see. Walls and columns lined with gold and shields and this amazing throne of ivory overlaid with gold. I mean, that where. Nothing like this had ever been constructed before. Such extravagance. And you put yourself in the audience who was first reading this book here. You know, we, the, 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 the psalm that we all read together earlier was a psalm where the exiles were singing about when they were in exile uh, in Babylon. And could you imagine... Could you imagine their response when they, would, when they would read this? Because when Kings was written, it was written to that audience. It was written to an audience that was sitting in a foreign land, kicked out of their homes. The last time they saw Jerusalem, it was on fire. 
And they were in chains and handcuffs being hauled out of their home country. And all of a sudden they read this and go, are you kidding me? Our home used to be the economic center of the world. And wealth overflowed to the point where silver was like dust. You can imagine the feeling that it created, but you could also imagine this, that it had to make them at some point begin to ask the question, what happened? What went wrong? How did we go from that to now living in a foreign land in what is modern-day Iraq and wondering, boy, did we... We messed up somewhere. Now, where did we mess up? You know, they were blown away at what they have read, that the city that they had once lived in used to be the greatest and wealthiest city of the world. You know, and things like that, and events that happen in our lives like that, it is a reason for us to dive in deep and do a deep introspection in our hearts and testing our motives, and looking over the past, and looking at things that have happened, and answering the question, what happened? What went wrong here? It's one of the reasons why I think definitely that, well, actually not just I think, I mean, the Apostle Paul actually said it, but the, one of the reasons that Kings was written is because it is to teach us valuable lessons about ourselves and the kingdom of God. You have to compare this description of Solomon to Deuteronomy chapter 17, because they are meant, they were written and meant to be compared. Because in Deuteronomy 17, there was a, if you remember, it was, it was Moses' last sermon that he gave to the Israelites before they crossed the Jordan River to go into the promised land. And he told them that, you know, look, one day you're going to want a king. One day you're going to get a king. But I need you to understand something about your ruler and what you need to be looking for. And in Deuteronomy 17, beginning at verse 14, he says, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess, it, you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like the nations who are around me, you will surely set a king over you whom, whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as a king over for yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him... And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing the, all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left, so that his, he, his sons, may continue long in the kingdom in the midst of Israel." You read that passage, and what's so interesting is the writer of Kings is deliberately writing about Solomon with a view of Deuteronomy 17 in mind. 
You probably saw some of that, didn't you? When you, The mentioning of horses, the mentioning of Egypt, the mentioning of polygamy, the mentioning of precious metals like silver and gold, all of those things were meant to be drawn into comparison. Pretty much everything that Moses warned about not to be done, Solomon did. Moses warned about this, and Solomon seemed to almost just completely ignore it. I mean, Solomon was, I mean, Solomon went so far as he was an arms dealer. Did you notice that? He was buying military weapons and horses, chariots, other equipment and things, and he was trading arms between Syria and Egypt and all these nations, which, by the way, curiously, those nations to which he was selling those arms to came back later and attacked them. Some people never learn, right? Seen that in our own history. God specifically says, you don't, you're, not, you're not going the way of Egypt again, but yet he quickly went to Egypt. Why? Because the pursuit of international trade ventures far outweighed his concern for the things that God had warned him against. Solomon was a major figure in the international marketplace. I don't know if you caught that in the text of 1 Kings, but he had so much military equipment, he even had what they called chariot cities, military bases. It takes an enormous amount of money, especially in the ancient world, to fund a standing army. And it shows as a, it's a showcase of just lavish, unprecedented wealth. At some point, Solomon went from building God's kingdom to building his own. Did you hear that? At some point, there was a shift. There was a shift from where Solomon was all about the temple and the kingdom of God to where all of a sudden it became about Solomon and his house. I mean, we got a glimpse of that in chapter 7 when we learned that of all the square footage of the buildings that were built, 75, Solomon's personal buildings and residence was 75% larger than the temple square footage. And by the time Solomon was done with the construction, anybody who was approaching the Temple Mount couldn't even see the temple. The first thing they saw was Solomon's house. Solomon's wisdom to acquire wealth eventually turned and became a a wrong use of it. The blessing of God he made into a curse. Money was pouring in. Solomon controlled the king's highway. He collected tolls. He was a leader in international trade. He had partnered with Hiram, king of Tyre, for his, for his sea merchants and, and ships. And basically, Solomon was the guy that everybody in the world wanted to do business with. And as I said before, he was the center of the economic universe. Solomon may have built it, by the hand of God. But what we learn in 1 Kings later is that Solomon couldn't handle it. And what Solomon had amassed was a huge problem. And it's something, though, that was clearly told. Moses completely called this out way ahead of time. 
Did you notice that in verses 17 and 20 of Deuteronomy 17? He said he shall not multiply wives for himself, or his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. And then in verse 20, he says that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. Why? Because there's two things that do go together. They're what they're called the twins. Ego and money. Pride and money are inseparable twins. Heart and pride, the accumulation of treasure, things, and money, and stuff will always work to draw your heart away and exalt your ego. You know, the, the thing about it is it probably was something at some point that Solomon felt like he, could ha- he had under control. Any of us ever felt that way before? Oh, I got this. Problem is, a lot of the things that we think we got, it gots us. That's the problem. Terrible grammar, but you get my point. But here's what I want you to miss. Deuteronomy 17 and 1 Kings chapter 10 is a reminder of this, that God knows your heart better than you do. God knows your heart better than you know your heart. God knows your weaknesses. God knows your temptations. God knows exactly what will draw you away more than you are aware of it. It's kind of like being a parent and your child doesn't understand the rule of why you must look both ways before you cross the road. And what, but what they don't understand, you are giving them and is designed for their protection. The commands of Deuteronomy 17, they were not meant to deny enjoyment. There's no command against having riches. There's no command against having treasure. That's not the issue. The problem is God is not trying to deny us enjoyment. God is trying to protect us and make sure that we are not blinded by the power of lust. You know, in our Friday morning studies, we've been going through Hosea, and this is one of the issues that we've learned in Hosea was how dangerous economic prosperity was because the more that people felt prosperous, they all of a sudden also felt independent. The more that you have, the problem is the, more, the less dependent you become or feel upon God. And everybody's there. This is not just a one-person kind of... This is not just an isolated group who faces this temptation. This is why the Bible is, has so much to be, to be written and say about the issue of money. Because it's a universal temptation. Money and pride go hand in hand. And when we have more than we need, it swells our pride. We're tempted to view ourselves as better than others and those who have less than us as inferior. That's a temptation. We become less dependent upon the Lord. And when that happens, the tendency is for our heart to drift. You know, it's kind of like the, you know, when you're in the midst of a storm in life and you're dependent on the Lord, it's like driving in the rain. You know, when it's raining hard, man, you're focused like a laser beam trying to look ever, you know, and the wipers just get more annoying, right? But you're really looking at that road, trying to make sure you see every obstacle in front of you. But also when the rain quits, the traffic lightens up, it's easy to become what? Distracted in the car, 
doing something you shouldn't be doing, looking at the phone or texting or something. I pray we're not doing that anymore. Or we're looking at sites or whatever. And when we start doing that kind of stuff, what begins to happen? We start to swerve. We drift away. And see, that's what happens here with the heart. The Bible doesn't condemn the wealth, but it does issue a magnitude of warnings about it because the Lord knows what happens to our heart. He knows what happens to our ego when we have more than we need. It's a universal problem. Everyone faces the same temptation. In fact, the warning that God gave to Israel there, is a, uh, to, to the king right there, is also a warning that's similar to what he gave to Israel back in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Listen to this very, very carefully. Deuteronomy 8, 11, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments or his ordinances or his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you've eaten and are satisfied, you've built good houses, lived in them, when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and your gold multiplies, and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt and the house of slavery. Interesting, skipping to verse 16. He says, in the wilderness, God, he fed you with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and might, he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you might say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand has made me this wealth. You see? You see, the Lord even said, look, I mean, the, the, the temptation that every one of you are going to face is that when you cross over that land, when the, when you've, when the wars are over, when the Canaanites are defeated, when your homes are built, when the vineyards are producing well, when everything in life is, goes well, the tendency that we all have in our pursuit of God is to take our foot off the gas. Why does it take a crisis in our lives to draw us back to a time of prayer? Think about that for just a moment. Why is it that all of a sudden, when something catastrophic or something, a crisis happens or something goes on in your life, all of a sudden, what's the first thing we decide to try to do? Pray. The problem is, is that when things go well in our life, we get this sort of this independent spirit. And we're drifting. Listen, in our society, everything in our culture is about excess. With the power of a plastic card and a digital screen, you can fulfill all your lust, all your pleasures, all your excesses, and all your greeds with the things of this world. And we don't realize what kind of competition that creates for us being loyalty to the kingship of Christ. God said that the time of that wilderness journey was a testing to find out what was in their heart. Listen, this life right now is a time of testing in your life to test your allegiance, my allegiance, our loyalty, because if we remain faithful, just as he promised to the Israelites, he will do good to us in the end as well. 
The problem is we've been grubhubbed. We're not willing to wait for the promise fulfilled. I want it all, and I want it now. You know, going back to 1 Kings there and looking back at the top of that passage and beginning in verses 14 through 22, you know, when we read that, Solomon, the amount of wealth that he brought in was absolutely staggering. By today's standards, billions upon billions. And Solomon built one of the most powerful economies in the world. And it wasn't all just through trade and tariffs. A lot of it was through taxes, too, which explains why, part of the reason why the kingdom split later. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Government's, government income goes up, taxes go up. What do you know? Yeah, I'd just make that passing point. I'll let you guys fill in the rest of the blanks. You know, some of you may be tempted this morning to say, well, this doesn't really apply to me because I'm not rich. But we need to understand rich and poor in very biblical concepts. Let me, let me, let me ask you something to consider. You don't, have, don't raise your hand, okay? I'm not, but these are questions I do want you to ponder for just a moment. Do you have enough money or enough food in your pantry to eat more than one time a day? Do you have more than one set of clothing? If you answer yes to those questions, then the answer is, you are rich. You are blessed. You have discretionary money. You can make discretionary choices. You have more than just what you need. You see, we have a very skewed understanding of what it means to be poor and rich. And all social classes in our society don't think about these categories correctly. Especially when you live in our world where everyone believes that they deserve to be wealthy. Listen, if you have discretionary income or money, then by the Bible standards, you are rich. If you can make a choice on where you live, if you can make a choice on what you drive, if you can make a choice on what you wear, if, if you make a choice on, not, on what you eat, not if you eat, but on what you eat, then the Bible calls you rich. But what we don't realize is that the power that discretionary income has in our hearts I overheard a woman in church one time say about her, about her, you know, her child and clothing. She made the comment, I only buy name brand clothes. Well, there's certainly nothing wrong with having a quality item, but what she doesn't realize is that she has just confessed the sin of loving excess. Because having a status symbol, it becomes a sense of pride. It becomes a sense of identity. But that's the world that we live in. It pushes us not only to get what we want, but if you have it, flaunt it. If you can have it, if you can charge it, if you can buy it, if you can rent it, if you can drive it, if you can build it, and heaven knows, if you can store it, then you deserve it. That's what the message of the world teaches. 
These verses that we have in 1 Kings are saturated with showing us just how much wealth Solomon had. But it also shows us that greed and pride had turned his heart just as God had warned. He'd been grub-hubbed. Y'all can officially mark this day down. I coined that term, right? But he'd been grub-hubbed. Why? Those things turned his heart. He wanted it all, and he wanted it now. When you read all those shields of gold, all these things, I mean, it just speaks of just excess. You know, I've got to address something, and yes, I'm mindful of the clock, and I may go over, so I'm going to ask forgiveness ahead of time, but I have to address this. Probably when we first read this, you probably looked at verse 14 there and saw that in one year, he brought in 666 talents, right? And all of a sudden, some of you went, oh, there it is. There's the numbers, right? Holy smokes, what are we going to do now? And so the question becomes, you know, is there any connection to this to Revelation chapter 13? What do we do? Now, as you read that, it doesn't mean that that was his, that was his annual income every year, but just giving you an idea that just in one year, that's how, many, that's how much he took in. And I don't really have a whole lot of time to talk about Revelation 13. In fact, I have no time because I'm, it's, it, it's a whole other series of sermons by itself. But I, I do want you to understand, though, that I am very convinced that when John wrote that in the 13th chapter of Revelation, that he had Solomon in his field of vision. Not exclusively, because there were other competitors. There were other, there were other people that were in mind as well. But there is, I do believe, a strong allusion here to Solomon. Revelation 13, 16 through 18, and he, that is the beast, causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. He provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of that beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. You know, it's interesting because what, you know, while much can be said about the passage, it is clear that, that Revelation is speaking about a figure, a man, who has consolidated economic power and who also influences toward idolatry. Solomon did both. Solomon ended up apostatizing and building shrines and altars to the wives of his, you know, to the gods of his foreign wives, and plummeted the entire nation towards a pathway towards idolatry. So, like I said, I don't believe John is talking about Solomon exclusively, but he certainly has Solomon within his field of vision here. Because Solomon eventually chased after idols. He led the nation towards idolatry. Did you hear that? The wisest man is the one who ultimately led the nation toward idolatry. And it's a warning to us that the power that economic pressures can have on our faith. Revelation, not revelations, but revelation, the final book of the Bible, the apocalypse, was written to churches who were facing persecution. They were written to churches who were dealing in a time frame to where their own livelihood was at stake because of their confession to the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? where people who had economic power sought to shut their businesses down, shut their incomes down, and, unless they abandoned 
their loyalty to Jesus Christ. Folks, that day is coming again. In some ways, it's already here. There are certain things in your jobs you're probably being asked to comply with that in good conscience you can't can't do it. But let me tell you something. If you love money more than Christ, you will compromise. You can't wait until the day comes when you're facing those things. You've got to be prepared in your heart now. Churches back then were making decisions on whether to follow Christ or compromise. Is Jesus worth you losing your job, your home, your friends, positions, possessions, status, prestige, or the food of your choice? Is Jesus worth that to you? You know, before we answer that too quickly, we need to really think hard about that. What or who has your heart? You know, what we can learn from Solomon is that we underestimate the power that loving money and excess and discretion has on our hearts. The church in our country needs to desperately learn the principle of what it means to be content. Just because you can doesn't mean that you should. I want to direct your attention to 1 Timothy 6 because it's a good reminder. It'll be on the screen, but I want you to look at this. Paul says in writing to Timothy in verse 7, we've brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Notice verse 8. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Ask yourself this question, would I be content with just food and clothing? Sadly, probably a lot of us are not. Because our culture teaches that if, 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 we've, if we have it, we've earned it, and we deserve it. And that kind of attitude shows a heart that has wandered away. Again, it's not... Having treasure is not a problem. It's when the treasure has you that's the problem. You know, the more that we have, the more that we can give. The more that we can give and the more that we have, also the more that we can serve. Possessions increase our ability to do ministry and to serve. And I want you to hear that carefully. Because Romans 12, 1 and 2, it increases our ability to offer our bodies as a, as a living sacrifice, which is our reasonable service for worship. Worship involves service. 
In fact, you may not even realize this, but oftentimes in the Hebrew text, in the Old Testament, the word for worship is the word eved, which is the word service. Do you know that? To serve is to worship. The more we have, the more we can serve. But the problem is the discretionary power. The more we have doesn't mean the more vacations we can take or the more Sundays we can skip or the more we can just treat ourselves by the way, was on the Grubhub website too. Treat yourself. That's that's the motto we live in. Or the more that we can just do church whenever it's convenient for us. Look, continuing in 1 Timothy 6, look what he says in verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be, there it is, conceited. There comes pride again. I told you, money and pride are always the twins. Not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. It goes back to what I told you earlier. God wasn't wasn't trying to to deny something to Israel or to Israel's king. He was helping them to understand the power of of the ego itself and what it has to draw their hearts away. And in verse 18, look what he says. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. The more you have, Paul says, the more you can serve. I've said it Many times, having the treasure, it's not the sin. It's when the treasure has you. Paul instructs us, instructs us with riches to be rich in good deeds and works, be generous, sharing and giving. In other words, the more that you have, the more opportunity of things you can do. Why? Because our hope is not fixed on the treasure now, but on the treasure that Christ has laid up for us. I mean, people are fine with not serving in the church, but man, they'll cross a thousand miles if they learn they can make a quick buck. We live in a grub-hub culture A Grubhub culture that really has no future hope. Everything's about now. Now. I want it now. That's the Grubhub culture. We live in a world where God is not God. The God today is the power of individual consumer choice. That's the God today. What I want, when I want it, and how I want it. Everything is about the power of your choice, about your wants, your needs, your likes, your dislikes, your tastes, your preferences, that's all we live in. Everything is about that. We are a marketing-saturated society that caters to the individual choice. We live in a land that caters to our love of excess. It offers more choices than any other era of human history. You realize that? No civilization anywhere in the world at any time in history has the the myriad and plethora of choices, individual choices that we have before us. But what we don't realize is that that is also making a deep impact upon the church. Why do you think 6,000 churches close their doors every year? 
You know, even the way we view church becomes a matter of individual choice. Rather than serving the church or the church becoming, you know, the church becomes about serving me. You know, it's all about the music that I like, the ministries that I like, the preaching that I like. You know, it, everything becomes now a matter of personal preference. We bring a consumeristic mindset and mentality into the local church, not about doctrinal issues or not about major, you know, hills on which to die, but instead we become petty and bickering over small things that ultimately are about preferential choice, not about the kingdom of God. People choose churches over fleshly items. Well, it's not the, you know, it's not the music, or this, that's not this. I mean, all these little small things, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, listen. We don't realize that the power of living in the land of excess and and the power of consumer choice, what it means to us, and what it's doing to even us as we think through things like a covenant community of believers who are bound together and covenant oath by the blood of Christ. Let me ask you something. Are you serving the church, or are you trying to make the church serve you? Apathy in churches is related to this problem. Not being desperately dependent upon the Lord. Many people are attracted to Jesus. Do you hear me? Many people are attracted to Jesus. Jesus. They like the idea of Jesus. They like the principles that he teaches. They think it's good for their kids. It's good for them to, to aspire to be like Jesus. And Jesus had many crowds and people that were following him because they were attracted to him. But he only had a handful that actually followed him. You can be attracted to Jesus and not a follower of Christ. There are so many other things that glitter and shine in this world, truthfully, that that make following Jesus way too hard and make being content in the Lord way too boring. Some of us don't have the hope of the future. We don't have a hope of heaven because the reality is heaven's kind of boring. Why should I long for a future inheritance when by the power of a plastic card, I can have everything I want right here and right now? You don't need heaven. You can make one right here of your own. And now you can get a little droid to drop it off to you. I ask this question all the time. What is competing for your heart? What is competing for your loyalty? What is it that is in conflict with your allegiance to following Christ? And it may not be just money. For some of you, it could be addictions. It could be pornography. It could be drugs. It could be alcohol. It could be the con- just the bent of just consumption. It could be gluttony. It could be a host of things. It could be addictions to gossip. It could be whatever all these things may be. What is it that is competing for your loyalty to Christ? You know, as time passes, there are certain quotes that become forgotten. One of those quotes I think that our culture is forgetting is the quote by Jim Elliott that some of you who are older will definitely remember. Some of you have never heard it before, and I think it's worth repeating. Jim Elliott was a missionary. He was killed in Ecuador. Not too far from where our church has been serving, by the way. And he said this, He is no fool to give up 
what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give up what he can't keep in order to gain what he can't lose. Our hope in Christ must overcome our lust for this present age. We must not forsake a greater inheritance, a greater wealth management plan, and a never-ending treasure for the sake of pathetic things in this present life. The Lord offers us so much more, but we've got to be on guard against our pride, our desire for control, our lust, our desire for stuff now, the Grubhub mentality, because in the end, these things will leave you destitute and devastated at the appearing of Christ or your death. You know, really, I'll close with this. It's a direct contrast to the Queen of Sheba. She went through so much to pursue the wisdom of God. To hear the wisdom of God from Solomon, and yet Solomon is the one who ultimately forgot his own wisdom. It's a sad story. Solomon's discernment faded as the lust of his excess blinded his spiritual eyes. And I want to say this to you. As a church, when you go to our website, you can read this statement. Our church's purpose says to delight in the will and the ways of Christ and to lead others to do the same. When you became a member of Covenant Baptist Church, one of the things that we stated and said is that our purpose is to delight in the will and the ways of Christ and to lead others to do the same. Here's my question for you. Do you delight in the will of Christ? A will that speaks of sacrifice. A will that speaks about delaying treasure. A will that speaks about service. Putting yourself before, putting others before yourself. Or have you been conned by the Grubhub culture? If we're really being honest with ourselves, many of us may not be able to say that we do delight in the will of Christ, but that's what we need to find out. Do we find our absolute joy, our comfort, and our peace and contentment in the will of Christ? Can't answer that for you. You gotta do that inspection in your own hearts. You gotta test the motives of your heart. You gotta find out who do you love or what you love and making sure that our security and that our identity is not in something or someone else but that it is in Christ alone who is our spiritual treasure. If you don't know Jesus, if he's not your delight, you can walk through those double doors when I begin to pray and someone there will be glad to meet with you and talk with you about the good news of Jesus Christ. If you know Christ but you realize this morning you've wandered away, I beg you in the name of Jesus, come back. Pursue him. Because all of us have a greater inheritance who follow Christ than what this world can ever offer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am grateful for this reminder this morning that no matter how Satan may parade or offer deceptions before us that offer what seems to be greater pleasures, we are grateful this morning, Lord Jesus, that your word 
just shines a bright spotlight on what really is lurking in Satan's shadows. That nothing can take the place, Lord, of what you offer. Lord, what you offer will never perish. What you offer will never fade. What you offer, Lord Jesus, cannot be destroyed. And what you offer, Lord, is forever. But Lord, the things that Satan tries to deceive us with, Lord, these are the things that ultimately we can never control. So Father, I pray this morning, give us eyes to see clearly Help us to hold on to the things of this world loosely and let us serve you joyfully. Father, we thank you for saving wretched sinners like us. Lord, help us to delight in your will and in your ways and teach others to do the same. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.